The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. There is a judgment greater than anything you've ever known. It won't be long. Your life will pass by as a vapor and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And every secret deed and thought Every wrinkle, every spot will be in view Before the one who knows all things The Lord of Lord and King of Kings You know the one you never knew While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come He is the shelter from the coming storm All creation shakes at the mention of His name. He has power over life and death. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. Heaven and earth will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father will you bow, will to his majesty he can save you from the might of all your sin this is the fight in which he stands in perfect victory while you have breath you have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come Shelter from the coming storm While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from all your sin And believe on the risen Christ can find peace in Him from the judgment that's to come. He is a shelter from the coming storm. He's the only shelter from the coming storm.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I want to share with you a scripture. It's found in Amos, the fifth chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourself. I listened yesterday to a man who has been a favorite of mine for a number of years, but I had not listened in some time. I won't give you his name. I simply want to speak about what I saw. It was a mega church. The first 48 to 50 minutes was spent in what they called praise and worship. To me, it was not praise and it was not worship. It was like sitting in a concert somewhere in a concert hall, listening to cheap music, watching performers. The crowd was enthusiastic. They were clapping and shouting and dancing They were worked up. And then finally the pastor came to the pulpit. He announced his sermon title. From the pit to the palace. And then he began to lay out how every one of us are loved by God that we have a divine destiny and that he wants to prosper us. And he began to lay out all of the humanistic philosophy for how you can be all you could possibly hope to be and how you could gain all of this wonderful palace that you're on your way to. Saying, don't stay in the pit, get out of the pit course referring to Joseph as he was in the prison house but he really wasn't talking about Joseph he was feeding the flesh of his congregation with buzzwords with phrases that they'd shout and clap to I was so disheartened listening to this man preach that I finally turned it off. I could not stand a moment longer. Why? Amos says it as well as anyone can say it. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear as though he entered his house 
rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake by him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music, and I add, to the music of your bands. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. God hates the modern American church. He hates the games we play. He hates the sound of the music and the dance. People waving these batons and, and waving their flags and jumping up and down and shouting and saying they love Jesus, they love Jesus. He is sick of it and does not want to hear it. Why would I say such a thing? Well, the scriptures are very clear why he would say such a thing. Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, verse 10, Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down. We're wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Obviously, that's not what the American church is saying. The American church doesn't feel like its offenses and sins weigh them down. They don't say we're wasting away. They say we're prospering. Everything is getting better. America has a great future. No, it doesn't. God is finished with America. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but he wants them rather to turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Well, what are the evil ways he wants us to turn from? If we go in the scriptures, and I'll do that now, Matthew, the seventh chapter, I'm going to begin reading for you in verse 13. This is the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He says, you must enter in through the narrow gate. That is, you must enter in through the suffering gate. The suffering affliction gate. Have you entered into the kingdom of God via the suffering gate? Has it caused you affliction? What have you lost? For wide is the gate and broad is the way leading into destruction, and many are the ones entering through it. Yes, almost the entire American church has entered into that broad gate. Verse 14, how narrow or how groaning is the gate and restricted is the way that leads to life. And the ones finding it are few. I could show you passage of scripture after passage of scripture that tells us that not very many are going to be saved, that the majority of people will be lost. Well, what's happened? What has happened in America? I listened this morning to a portion of an Easter, last Easter sermon by a Baptist pastor, an old man, 
He's been preaching there for 57 years. And the message that he has preached consistently for these 57 years is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he was crucified for our sin, and that on the third day he arose, and that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is the American theology of salvation. It is what almost everyone believes. Almost everyone who calls themselves a Christian in America would say, right on, pastor, you've just given us the gospel. No, I haven't. I've given you the poison pill that will take you to hell. What am I talking about? It's called context. It's called cherry-picking a passage of Scripture, pulling it out and saying, this is the gospel. Now, you can do the same thing if you go over here uh, to Romans. Let me turn to it. If you go to Romans, the 10th chapter, you can do the same thing. Chapter 10, verse 9. This is called the Roman road. If you may confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and may believe with your heart that God raised him out from among the dead ones, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confesses unto salvation. And of course, the way they believe is that we are made righteous through imputed grace given to us freely by Jesus in the midst of our wickedness as we continue walking in our sin. For the scripture says, everyone believing on him will not be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew or Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all. The Roman road. These two passages, a whole theology has been built on for America. And bottom line, it's a lie. It's a lie because they have not read Romans, the 12th chapter, the first verses. They've not read Romans 6 and understand what Romans 6 is all about or Romans 5. We have simply said, okay, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Okay, I believe on Jesus. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I know a pastor who said, my whole church is saved. And he was including himself. And this is what he believes. He has believed in the name of Jesus Christ. So he's saved. Even though his life does not demonstrate any righteousness. He loves the things of the world. He walks after the things of the world. He enjoys his wonderful American life. He's not on his way to heaven. He's loving it right here. But oh, yes, come Jesus, come. We want you to come now, Jesus. If Jesus were to come now, He'd be cast into hell. Now, all of this has arisen for me as I have read and reread and prayed and wept over John 17. Jesus and the disciples have been sitting at the table having the last Passover meal 
before Jesus is to be crucified. Judas has already left. The devil has already filled him, and he's taking armed men to take Jesus captive in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what's going on before they get to the Garden, however. As he talks about the Holy Spirit who's going to come, who's going to teach everything that Jesus has said to them. And then finally, just before they're ready to leave that upper room, which we find in chapter 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was an olive grove. He and the disciples went into it. So, in context, what I'm talking about <clears throat> is after the, the finishing of the meal, where Jesus has passed the goblet, the third goblet full of, of grape juice or wine, he's passed it to the disciples and said, here, share this. This is the blood of the new covenant. He's passed the bread. This is my body broken for you. All of that has been finished. He has said to them, take heart. I've overcome the world. And then Jesus looks up toward heaven and he begins to pray. The first five verses of John 17, Jesus deals with himself. And then very quickly, he transitions. In the sixth verse, he says, I have revealed you, speaking to the Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So the first thing Jesus wants to say is that my disciples They were yours, Father, but you gave them to me. Now, I'm reporting that I gave them your word and they have obeyed. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Jesus is not praying for the world. Now, in this hour before he is taken captive and he is taken to be crucified, the cry of his heart is for his disciples. Now, as we go deeper into this prayer, he asks the Father to protect his people through the power of his name. He wants his people to be one, even as he and the Father are one. Now he says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture may be fulfilled. And now he says, I'm coming to you. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, please understand what's happening here. Jesus has come into the physical world. His disciples only know the physical realm. They know the dusty roads. They know fishing. They know family. They know the old covenant agreements. They know the feast days. They have kept all of these. They have learned that these point to something beyond them, but they don't understand what that is. And then that which all of these pointed to shows up among them as a man, as God. 
And now begins a process of drawing them out of the world and into the spirit realm. Drawing them out of the heart of the devil who holds them captive in their sin. Drawing them out into righteousness while they walk clean before Almighty God. This process has been going on for them for three and a half years. They have witnessed the leper healed. They've witnessed the wine from water in Cana of Galilee. They have witnessed the signs that Jesus has given them, indicating that he is God, that only God could do these miracles. Now he comes and he says, I have given them your word. This is verse 14, John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word. And that word is logos. It's the same word that John uses in the gospel of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word, the logos was with God and was God. In other words, he has taught them who he is and what he wants and what he stands for. And he's calling them out of the world, the flesh and the devil. He's calling them to separate themselves from wickedness, to live godly lives. Now watch. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, the modern church teaches, just believe on the name of Jesus and continue in your evil ways. He loves you. He has you covered and you're on your way to heaven. That was not what Jesus prayed for his church. He said, verse 16, to the Father, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify is hagios in the Greek. It means to make holy or to totally consecrate. One translator put it this way, enable them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. What's he saying? Jesus is already holy. He's he's not committed any sin. Why is he saying, I sanctify myself? He's saying, I am consecrating myself to dying on Calvary for my disciples and for for the world, for you. That they too may be truly consecrated to me. That they may truly be consecrated. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. To understand, Jesus is praying to the Father. He is not lying. He is praying the truth. And he's saying, I want my people to be like I am. That is, to be without sin, to be made righteous. The scriptures are just absolutely full of this truth. You know, if you were to go If you were to go to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 11, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of man, 
but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Please hear me when I say this. Why will you die in your sin? Jesus died on Calvary to remove our sin, all sin. Romans 6, to utterly destroy the old nature. We are to walk clean before Almighty God. We are not to walk in sin. Now, the reason this becomes so painful is that we love our sin. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We want the freedom to be angry. And to be righteous, we are absorbed with ourselves. That's standard Americanism. And we don't want to be inconvenienced. Don't inconvenience me. I'll do what I like to do. I'll help people. But only as it works for me. Don't inconvenience me. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure? Chapter 3 of Colossians. Since then you've been raised with Christ... Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, Chapter 3, verse 5. The King James Version puts it, Mortify your body of sin. That is, a better translation in the NIV. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he begins to give us a whole hit list of what should be put to death. See, Jesus... In in John 17, I'm going to go back to this quickly. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his people. And he's saying, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Well, what do you mean protect them? Not allow the evil one to control their hearts or their lives. They have died. They are hidden with Jesus. He says they're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Consecrate them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may truly be sanctified. In other words, I am giving myself utterly, totally, and completely to the work to consecrate myself for the crucifixion. And he's saying, I want you to consecrate yourself to dying also with me, to being crucified with me. If we want to follow Jesus, we're going to have to take up our cross. And there's going to have to be a radical transformation in our lives. And we're going to have to shut out the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going to have to turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. He says, 
Put to death, therefore, or mortify whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, this is what belongs to the earthly nature by name. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Impurity would include masturbation. He's talking about everything here. Uncleanness. Lust. Evil desires. A man called me this morning. He was feeling very guilty. And he could already feel the Lord's judgment on his heart and his life. He was early this morning on Instagram and up pops pornography. I said, brother, you don't belong on Instagram. Get it off your computer. It's from hell. It will take you to hell. He was very repentant. Asked me to pray with him. I did. I asked God to make him a disciple of Jesus, that he would shut off these evil desires, this lust, this impurity, this sexual immorality. This is not easy stuff. I'm a man. What about my sexuality? Give it to Jesus. It belongs to him. He goes on, he talks about greed, which is idolatry. Greed is, I want it my way. I'll give when when I want to, but idolatry is the worship of what I want and not what Jesus wants. Because of these, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming on the church because of these things. Verse 7, this is Colossians 3, verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And now he's going to give a very specific hit list of things that he says a Christian must be washed from, must be cleansed of. Anger. Rage. Malice. Slander. Filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. To understand... The Lord Jesus is calling you to leave your life of sin. And if you are saying to yourself, Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But you're continuing to walk in sin. You're lying. You're not speaking the truth. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, not anger, not bitterness, not fear that you're going to lose having your good time. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. It doesn't say that that other person has to forgive and not hold grievance against you. It says you must do that. You're the Christian. 
forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is Colossians. Pretty clear, isn't it? See, in the prayer of Jesus, he's speaking with the Father. He's saying, don't take them out of the world. Jesus needs us in this world as salt and light. He does not need an institution in the world. He doesn't need an institution in the world. He needs you and he needs me, filled with the spirit of the living God. There's no record that any of the disciples built any institutions to spread the gospel of Jesus. They had no institutions. Oh, there were government institutions. There were Jewish institutions. But in the first hundred years, there were no gospel institutions. There were just men and women who were sanctified entirely unto Jesus, who had committed themselves entirely to being new men and new women in Christ Jesus, utterly leaving all sin, not walking in any known sin before Almighty God. And you say, Pastor, how can that be? How do we do it? Well, it requires, it requires that we die. It requires that we give up our life. It requires crucifixion with Jesus. First John, the third chapter. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. You say, I'm saved. What are you saved from? Are you saved from your sins? If you're not saved from your sins, you're not saved. They're not covered. There's no blanket of grace to cover your sin. It has to be removed from your life and from your heart. You have to be washed and made clean. Verse 5. This is 1 John 3, verse 5. But you must know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. It does not say he who is declared righteous is righteous. He who has imputed grace is righteous. It doesn't say that. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Most of the church in America is of the devil. Be 
because they've been fed a lie that all they need to do is call on the name of Jesus, believe a few theological tenets like the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, say, I confess my sins, and you're saved. No, it's leaving your sins. Repentance means leaving your sin. You can't repent and then stay in your sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. If you are continuing to walk in sin, in sexual sin, if you're continuing to walk in anger and bitterness, if you're continuing to walk in self-love, if you're consumed with yourself, then you're not born of God. You have the institution of the Christian church. You have the pastors teaching that you're good to go because you name the name of Jesus. A few passages taken out of context and taken out of the true meaning given by the Gospels. And you think you're good to go. I'm very concerned for you today. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. If you continue in fornication, if you continue in the wickedness of sexual uncleanness, if you continue in drugs, if you continue in sexual perversion, if you continue in self-centeredness and anger and bitterness, you've not yet been born of God. And the great concern I have is the many men and women who call themselves Christian have no power to resist sin. They're swept away time after time by the lust of their heart, by the wickedness of their spirit, by their by their love of themselves, are swept away. Which tells me they've never been born again. Have you been born again? When the temptation to sin comes, and it will come to every one of us, do you have the power, do you have the authority in Jesus Christ to say, I'm done. I'm not going there. I'm not going to walk self-centered. I'm going to walk in humility before Almighty God. I'm going to prefer others before myself. I'm going to walk clean. I'm not going to view things that are of wickedness. I want my spirit to be clean before Almighty God. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. That is, if anyone does not put others ahead of himself, he has not been born of God. You can say all you want, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. But I read for you that passage out of Amos that's very clear. You want Jesus to come, but it's going to be a day of death and judgment and darkness for you. Now, what should we do? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Leave your life of sin. Search after Almighty God. Be transformed. 
by the renewing of your mind. Be made into a new creature in Christ. That's all the time we have for today. I'm praying for you. Some of you by name. Some I don't know. But I would love to hear from you. Write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. 22195. Now I pray that you will also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online. We're almost halfway through this month, and we're not halfway there yet with finances. I'm very grateful for those of you who have been giving, some of you with such consistent, generous love. Thank you. I know the Holy Spirit is the one moving you. If you'd like to give, you're welcome to. Go online, nationalprayerchapel.com. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is such a difficult, difficult understanding that what we've been taught, what I was taught, is simply... Believe in the name of Jesus, and I'm saved. Repent. Okay, I repent. Lord, we have believed a lie. And so the church, we are shallow and empty and angry, filled with darkness, filled with trouble. Oh, Lord, your joy does not fill the Christian church in America. It's a false joy. It's not the joy of the righteous. It's the joy of those who are finding pleasure in wickedness. Lord, I plead that you would save a remnant of your people, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds that we could understand that we must become new creatures in you, that we must mortify the flesh and we must be born from above. Lord, thank you. I ask your blessing for every person who's listened today to this broadcast. Thank you, my Lord. I pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I love you, my brother, my sister. I pray, even if this word is offensive to you, that you will search it out in the scriptures. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of his glory.